0: Please remain standing for our epistle lesson, which is also the sermon text from Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, give your ear to God's holy word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, Persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now that you would be present with us by your spirit, that you would bless its reading, its preaching, its hearing, Lord, that we might know the gospel, that we might know your son in a greater measure today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I've always been encouraged uh, that Paul gives... Minister's permission to reuse sermons in uh, Philippians three one, uh, when he says, uh, "For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe." Just kidding. Uh, that's that's not exactly what he says there. And that's don't worry if that's what you think. I'm not I'm not doing that today. This is a a new sermon, even though we've covered this text before. Um, but what Paul is saying in that verse is that in order to be safe. In order to be eternally safe, we need to be reminded of some things over and over and over and over and over again. We need to be reminded to rejoice, that is glory, or boast, or put our confidence in the Lord. He says in verse 1, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And we need to be reminded constantly to beware Beware of what? Beware of the way that our hearts can subtly shift our trust from Jesus back onto ourselves. And that's the danger that Paul's writing uh, to warn his friends in Philippi about in verse 2 when he says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. All these strange sounding epithets refer to teachers who came behind Paul when he would plant a church and insisted that um, trust in Christ must be supplemented by circumcision and rigorous commandment keeping in order for these Gentiles who had come to faith in order to be accepted by God um, and incorporated into his people. And Paul labels this Judaizing this Judaizing message that we've come to call it, requiring Gentile Christians to adopt Jewish practices and keep the law as a different gospel in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6. It's a danger. And although the temptations uh, specific to them might be a little different than ours, Paul writes to warn us that that move to add To the gospel of free grace that he preached is a move away from true saving righteousness, which is what this text is actually about. And so as we work our way through the text today, we're going to talk about what true saving righteousness is. We're going to talk about what it is. We're going to see Paul talk about its counterfeits. We're going to see how to have it and its effects. True saving righteousness. What it is, its counterfeits, how to have it, and its effects. First, what true saving righteousness is. We might be first helped by understanding what righteousness isn't. Righteousness isn't the same thing as forgiveness. You and I are sinners by nature and choice. We've amassed a record in our lifetime of sin against God because our natural disposition is away from God. And then we act out of that disposition and we accumulate a record of sin. And the Bible teaches that Jesus lived a perfect life that deserved absolutely no punishment whatsoever. But on the cross, God transferred or he imputed, he counted the record of all who believe to Christ. And Christ paid For our sins on the cross. That's what we just talked about in the assurance of pardon. That on the cross, Jesus took our record upon himself and God punished him in our place. It's like us being covered with filth and mud. And through Jesus, God strips away all of our filthy deeds and washes us clean from every sin. And this is really good news. This is wonderful. This is something that we celebrate every week, but it's not righteousness. Righteousness is better. What do you mean better? Well, I heard a missionary explain it to me this way once. Um, I want you to think about the last argument that you had with your spouse or a friend or a sibling. Okay, those of you that that aren't as sanctified and still have arguments with people, okay? Think about the last argument you had with your spouse, with a friend, or with a sibling. Okay, when that argument is over, would you rather be forgiven or right? Would you rather be forgiven or right? The honest among us would say, I'd rather be right. Right? Okay, that's the whole point. That's the whole reason for the argument is the first place is two people who think they are and want to be right. Forgiveness is wonderful. Being accepted back into someone's presence after you've wronged them is a glorious thing. And we celebrate it every week. God has done that for us in Christ. But being righteous, being right is better. Okay, so what is righteousness. Well, the Greek word righteousness that Paul uses in verses 6 and 9 has a couple aspects to it. In one sense, it deals with someone's person or their status. Okay, someone is righteous when he is as he ought to be, when he is in the condition that is acceptable to God. Okay, so it's your person, who you are. But in another sense, the word deals with their record or their actions. It means integrity or virtue, Purity of life, rightness, correctness in thinking, feeling, and acting. Both of these things put together is someone's righteousness, who they are in and of themselves, their status before God, and the record of deeds that flows out of that. Righteousness, then, is that about us which makes us acceptable or even praiseworthy in the sight of God. So forgiveness is like taking a bath, Righteousness is like putting on clothes. We take a bath so that we might be clean from all impurities, but we put clothes on so that we might be properly dressed to appear before other people. The prophet Isaiah says, "...I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness." Isaiah 61, 10. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, he had a record too, didn't he? Jesus had a perfect record. And when I'm united to him by faith, his perfect record is counted or imputed or given to me before God. Given to you before God. This This is the marvel of the gospel. Not only that your sins are freely forgiven, which is wondrous, but that God gives you the status, the love, the acceptance, the record, the adoption of his very own beloved son. That's what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. He says, I want to be found in him, that is in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness from God. The wonder of the gospel is that God not only accepts you, but he accepts you fully because of the person and work of his son. Your best successes cannot earn you any more access than you have in Christ, and your worst failures cannot take an ounce of it away. This is righteousness before God. And it's really easy to disbelieve, isn't it? Even as I'm saying it, aren't there, isn't there a part of your heart that's going, ah oh, yeah, but you know, instead we think that God graciously forgave us for everything in our past, and now it's up to us to do our part, to build a solid resume by keeping his commandments and obtain his approval on the last day. Most Americans, most church-going Americans, believe some form of that. God has wiped the slate clean. And now it's up to me to do my part. Now it's up to me to measure up to his standards. Now that he's given me this gracious second chance, I have to do my part. Most Americans believe something like that because it's entirely plausible. This is the way most relationships in our our life work, right? If you want to keep the job, you have to have good character. If you want to get into the school, you have to have good grades. Okay, it's plausible. Other relationships in life work that way, but it's entirely wrong. Even, even committed Christians find it difficult not to relate to God in this way in various places of our hearts and lives. Paul knew about this temptation because for many years he too had assumed this is the way that God worked. But he knew, as he wrote to the Philippians, that if you didn't have true righteousness from God, that you would look to set up some form of its counterfeits in your life, which is what he writes about. In verses 4 through 6. right now you've got to remember what I told you before. Remember the situation. This is what it is. Very often, after Paul would go out and plant a church in an area, some people, whom we've come to call Judaizers, would come in after him. And they'd say, yes, this Jesus that Paul preaches to you, he is the Messiah. And it's good and necessary for you to believe in him. But in addition... To this, you need to be circumcised, and you need to keep the Old Testament laws, and you need to be morally upright in order for God to accept you. And so part of Paul's burden here is to show that whatever the Judaizers were saying that you needed to do, Paul had done it. Paul had done it to the nth degree, and he still found it to be insufficient. And you and I, we can, we can construct Personal righteousness out of just about anything. But Paul's list here gives some of the most common candidates. In verse 5, he says of himself that he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. And so he's talking about uh, being righteous through religious ritual. Okay? He said, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like we were commanded to in the Old Testament. Now, uh, God's people, uh, the church, we don't practice ritual circumcision anymore. Uh, which is actually a a big plus for me in my job, Um, but how many people have comforted themselves over their wayward life or wayward children thinking that God accepts them because of their baptism or because they walked the aisle at summer camp or because they were confirmed as a teenager. You know, aren't aren't the... Rituals and the, and the um, sacraments of the church of benefit to us? Absolutely they are, when they're received by faith in Christ, just in the same way that circumcision was in the Old Testament. But no ritual by itself, even the God-ordained ones, will make someone right with God. But it's very easy to convince yourself that you are right with God because you have passed through the right ritual gates. It could be family or cultural righteousness. Paul says of himself, he was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. We modern people tend to um, only credit people with the achievements that they have You know, that they've done themselves and not so much about their family or their upbringing. But ancient peoples, including the Jews, they were more realistic. They knew that your ancestors, your social class, your educational opportunities, your religious training, or lack thereof, and and a ton of factors outside of your control contribute to the person that you become. And like Paul, you may be a person who has always belonged to the people of God or from a family that has served God for many generations. And this is a wonderful blessing, and it's a good thing. And it does not give you righteousness before God. The most common ones would be moral or religious performance. He says of himself, concerning the law of Pharisee, or verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Paul was not only a Pharisee, which was the most strict and conservative branch of Judaism in the day. Remember, uh, back in that day, Pharisee was a good term. Pharisee was a conservative person who kept the commandments and held to the scriptures in a way that other branches of Judaism didn't. Pharisee was a good term. And Paul went far beyond being a rigorous law keeper by becoming an avenger paul opposed anybody that he considered a compromiser or an idolater or who was not nearly as faithful as the sect that he belonged to right he persecuted those people that he thought were diluting the faith and when he says he's blameless maybe that might sound smug to some people but he's really just saying what every church member says of themselves not that he's perfect but that he displayed a consistent and conscientious Observance to God's commandments. No Pharisee back in the day would have said that they were sinlessly perfect, but that they made use of the forgiveness that God offered and they did their absolute best to obey His commandments and be acceptable to Him. Do you recognize yourself in any of those pictures? Do you recognize yourself in all of those pictures? How easy is it for us to construct a counterfeit righteousness? And now living that way, putting your identity, your value, your acceptability before God in those kinds of things, or in anything else, is a very sure way to have a miserable life. If you're doing well at the standards that you set for yourself, it's going to make you an angry person. If you don't believe me, just look at Paul. Stephen bests the Sanhedrin in a theological argument, and Paul becomes angry. Paul becomes murderously angry. Paul becomes so angry that he takes part in Stephen's execution. Why? Because he was blameless. He was doing everything that he was supposed to. He had the best theology. Who was this upstart deacon in the church to be preaching in pointing his finger at the Sanhedrin. Anytime someone calls you out on sin, just like Stephen did with them, your anger is going to ignite. Why? Because you've got to defend that righteousness that you're constructing. How dare he say that about me? He's a much bigger sinner than I am. These are the kinds of thoughts that run through your mind when you're constructing your own righteousness. Or if you're not doing so great, at the standard you're setting for yourself. It's going to make you anxious. I blew it again. Is it enough? Have I done enough? Will God accept me? And then as the fears and the doubts begin to eat away at your assurance and the anxiety grows, you become susceptible to the kinds of teachings the Judaizers went about peddling. Just do another thing. Just Go to another conference. Just do another ritual. Just start a new discipline. And the burdens begin to stack, one on top of another, on top of another, on top of another, until you really begin to resent God and the people who continually come to you and tell you yet another thing that he commands you to do. The worst part of constructing your own righteousness, though, is that it dishonors despises and tramples underfoot the grace of God in Christ. Whatever righteousness you or I construct will not meet God's standards ultimately, and its tragic end is to be judged by God eternally in hell after spending a life with his grace close at hand. And so how do I know how do I know if that's me? How do you know if you're starting to wander from the received righteousness of Christ that Paul puts forward in this passage? He actually gives you an acid test. Right? Here it is. What's your boast? Verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and rejoice or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in In the flesh. Paul said that he rejoiced or he boasted, as some translations say, or gloried only in Christ Jesus. What's your boast? What's your glory? What's your joy? There are all kinds of options that we've just run through. It could be your family, your morality, your job performance, your looks, your intelligence. All of that is the same. He says it's the flesh, your flesh. What your hands can accomplish and the person that you can try to become the record that you can amass before God it's the flesh and we're usually good enough we've become uh, mature enough socially aware enough not to boast crassly about these things in front of other people unless you're like uh, toddlers whom I one I won't name who recently told me and said daddy I'm I'm not A bad person like Catherine. I'm a good person. (laughs) All right, at some point we become socially aware not to be so crass in our boasting. But we all boast in something. We all glory. We all joy in something. What is your boast? And I'll tell you what it is it's what you use to console yourself, it's what you use when you need that bit of confidence. Did you see how Paul defined it there? He said, we worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. What do you use to address your fears, your guilty conscience, your loss of control? When your friend comes to you with that accusation of sin and it stings, or when you fail at something, when you're not sure how the kids will turn out, and when you're not sure what to do, everybody says, it'll be okay, fill in the blank. It'll be okay. I'm a good person. It'll be okay. We're in the right community. It'll be okay. I've got them in the good school. It's going to be all right. I can figure this out. Whatever you fill in the blank with, when life closes in, that's your boast, that's your confidence, that's your joy. But friends, all of those things are the flesh. Okay, We worship God, he says, in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. They're all good things. Everything that I listed out, everything that Paul listed out is good. Don't despise them. But don't put your identity, your security, or your standing before God into them. For that, you must have, instead, the righteousness of Christ. And So how do you get it? How do we get it? That's the next point. Well, Paul says there's two aspects to that. One is that you've got to perceive Christ's righteousness. You have to perceive his glory. And this happened for Paul in a climactic way, on the road to Damascus. You remember the story. Paul is there, and he's breathing out threats and murder against the church. He's hauling people into jail. He's taking part in their executions, just like he did with Stephen. And in Acts 9, it says this. As Paul as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And for three days he was blind. And in that pride-shattering encounter, in that blindness, Paul saw, he perceived some things clearly. In that blinding revelation, he saw that Jesus was infinitely more glorious, infinitely more valuable than he had ever imagined. In verse 8, he calls it the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. As Jesus appeared to him, he saw the excellence of knowing him. And consequently, he realized That the credentials that he had amassed through his strenuous effort were worse than worthless. But what things were gained to me, he says in verse 7, these I have counted loss. Indeed, I count all things loss. I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All the beautiful fruit that he thought he was producing for God and God's pleasure was actually rubbish. Which is... Many of you know, probably too mild of a translation, the Greek word is a term that means both spoiled food and or excrement. Okay? Compared to Christ, Paul's stellar resume, his heritage, his achievements were worth, worse than useless. And they actually just served to highlight for him how, fall, how far he had fallen short of God's standards. Think of it. Paul thought that he had zeal for the Lord. But through that zeal, he had defied and attacked the Lord's Messiah. He was exposed instead, as he writes to Timothy later, as a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. And yet, instead of receiving immediate punishment, the punishment that he deserved, he was not only pardoned by Jesus, but enlisted into Jesus' service as his witness. He received mercy so he could become an example of Christ's perfect patience, demonstrating to others how amazing God's grace can be. Isn't it not the same for you? When you perceive Jesus, when you see Jesus in the scripture, you see his perfect life, how he cared for the outcast, how he healed the sick, how he welcomed the sinner, How he gave sight to the blind and cleansed the leper. How he always did what was right and good and perfect. How he went to the cross for your sins. How he rose from the dead. His glory in the heavens. Have you perceived it? Have you seen it? Has it shown you that your own record is nothing compared to his? You have to perceive it. And when you do, what do you do next? You receive it. That's the second thing. You perceive the glory of Christ first, and then you receive him. See this? It says in verse 9, That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers the question, What is faith in Jesus Christ? We just read about Righteousness by faith. What is faith? The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this. Quote, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest on him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. End quote. So what do I do? In a word, nothing. You do nothing. You look and you rest you perceive him and you receive him you hear the gospel and you believe it faith in that way is like it's like doing the backfloat okay if you can do the backfloat if you're in the water and you want to keep your head above the water you have a couple of options one is you can tread water okay you can move your arms and your legs as strenuously as you want and try to keep your head above Or you can rest on the water. You can lean back and put all of your weight and all of your trust on the water, and it will hold you up. Faith is resting back on Jesus Christ because he can hold you up. And for those of you that can do the backflow, you know that the moment that you begin to look up to see how you're doing Am I floating? How much of me is floating? How's, how are things going? You change the angle, and immediately you begin to sink, right? In order to float, you've got to put your full weight, your full rest, your full trust back onto the Lord. John Bunyan, many of you know, a pastor, a Puritan writer in the 17th century, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, most famous book, one of the most famous books of all time. Writes about a time in his autobiography, um, in a time in his life when he was undergoing overwhelming darkness and temptation and even doubt. Doubt about his salvation, doubt about God's goodness. And this persisted for a period of time. But then he says this. Let me quote him. He says, quote, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So wherever I was or whatever I was doing, my righteousness was before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed, and I also went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. End quote. If you are here and the chains still bind your heart, your mind, if the chains still bind your legs and your arms, if you are walking under the burdens of anger anxiety, keeping up your record, amassing your record. It may be that you need to turn to Jesus for the first time in your life and see him there at the right hand of God, your righteousness, a perfect man who lived a perfect life and died on the cross in your place, not only to forgive your sins, but to give you his status as God's own beloved son. If you're here today and not a Christian, that is Christianity. To look to Jesus and rest back on him completely and fully for your righteousness before God. But even those of us who are Christians have places in the recesses of our hearts where we seek our solace in the flesh and what our hands have done in order to reassure us of our peace with God. And when you find yourself resting on anything other than Christ... You need to return to the gracious gospel that drew you to your Savior at the beginning. You need to see that Christ, and Christ alone, fulfills all of God's standards on your behalf in a way that checks our rising pride while at the same time silencing our guilty consciences. If you take that in, if you let that really sink into your bones, really sink into your heart, What difference will that make in your life? What would that do for you? Paul says there are three things that it'll do. One is it will give you a new motivation. You know, it's so natural to be moved by the fear of failure or the offer of recognition. Okay, I said that before. This is the way most of the world works. You're motivated by a fear of failure or the offer of recognition. But if God in Christ has already erased the threat of judgment, if God in Christ has already made you his beloved Child, uh, what keeps you moving on the straight and narrow? Okay, what keeps you running after God and obeying His commands? Paul gives us that new motivation in verse 10. He says, That I may know Him. You see, when you know Him, all things are counted lost compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. When you know Him personally, when you experience His light, his glory, His goodness. You're movi- motivated by His sweetness, His love, His care for you as you experience Him, as you come to Him in the Word. Article 24 of the Belgic Confession puts it this way. Quote, we believe that this true faith, produced in man by the hearing of God's Word and the work of the Spirit, regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live the new life and freeing him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, far from making people cold toward living a pious and holy way, this justifying faith to the contrary so works within them that apart from it they would never do a thing out of love for God but only out of love for themselves and a fear of being condemned. Quote. Unless I'm assured, as Paul was, that my place in God's heart is secured by a righteousness that's not my own, but by the obedience and sacrifice of Jesus, all of our best efforts at law-keeping, whether that's keeping his commandments or cultivating godly character, will be self-centered instead of driven by love for God. But the clearer of your grasp of God's love for you in Christ, the more intense will be your longing to experience knowing Christ. And the stronger will be your motivation to press on to know him better personal knowledge of jesus in other words is what makes takes your duties and makes them into delights god still calls and commands us to do all of his things but the knowledge of christ jesus the personal knowledge of jesus is what makes those things delightful to us And you see how that's a much better motivation to keep you away from sin right fear says i don't want to get caught but love for christ says when he's done so much for me, how can I sin against him? Or how can I sin against him and interrupt this sweet communion that I have with him? Right. It's also a way better motivation um, to empower you to live a holy life. Right. If you're just trying to gain a reward, you'll do just enough that you need to in order to get the reward that you're trying to gain. Okay. But if your motivation is to know Christ better, you can always know him better. You can always see more of his glory. You can always experience more of his grace. You can always walk in deeper communion. Right? Your motivation to do holy works, to have a holy life, is far greater when it's out of love for Christ. So first, there's a new motivation. He also gives you a new power. He says in verse 10, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, Paul says there's a new power in your life, the power of resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of resurrection. But notice how he places the fellowship of his sufferings right next to the power of his resurrection. That tells you something. That tells you that most of your sanctification comes through suffering involuntary suffering at the hands of other people, or voluntary suffering. As the Holy Spirit impels you to live a sacrificial life, laying down your life for other people. What's going to steal your resolve to not only face, but embrace, as Paul did, the fellowship of sufferings with Christ when our natural instinct is to pull away from everything that causes pain? It's Jesus' encouragement to you, just as he said to Paul My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect and weakness no threat to your life or comfort or safety not tribulation as Paul says distress persecution famine nakedness danger or sword can separate you from the love of God in Christ which is communicated to you by the present power of his spirit that he gives to you so we give you a new motivation give you a new power for holy living and finally it gives you an unshakable hope. He says in verse 11 that he wants to be conformed to Christ's death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. By any means, Paul's not saying that he's uncertain whether he's going to attain the resurrection um, or the outcome that Christ's already secured for him, but he's just simply saying that he's not sure what path God is going to take as he moves him to the his end to the glorious resurrection from the dead where Christ will transform his lowly body to be like Christ's glorious body as he writes later in the chapter in verse 21 where he will be with Christ forever. So much of our life, by any means, we don't understand just like Paul doesn't understand. So much in our life is uncertain. But for those of you who are in Christ, who have placed your faith in Christ who are walking in the power of his resurrection, being conformed to his death. This is your unshakable future. Because what Paul's writing about is not receiving righteousness as a concept, not receiving righteousness as a verdict only, but as the Holy Spirit communicates Christ to you. Faith is the instrument of a real union with Christ a real legal union with Christ, that God declares you to be not guilty in his courtroom and declares you to be his beloved child, of a spiritual union with Christ, of his Holy Spirit who's given to you and communicates all the benefits of Christ to you, and yes, of a physical union with Christ. As the Spirit presses out the cruciform life of Christ into your own life, into your own actions in your bodies, and one day, who will raise you from the dead and make you to be like him. We do not receive merely righteousness by faith, but we receive Christ himself, who is our righteousness by faith. This is true saving righteousness. Everything else, every record that we might amass, everything about our person that we think is wonderful and good, cannot compare to Jesus Christ, whom God gives us freely if we accept him by faith. This is the gospel. This is true saving righteousness. Let's pray and ask that God would impress this truth onto our hearts and minds more and more. Father, we thank you that you have given us your own son, that he has lived a perfect life before you, that he is in his person glorious and loving, wonderful, full of grace and truth, and you have made us acceptable in the beloved through him. And Father, I pray for every person in this room that we might grasp that with clear eyes, that our hearts and minds might receive by faith your son Jesus, whom you have sent to redeem us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.